Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download. The legal team quitting early, basically saying that they're not going to be able to uh, complete a real full argument. Well, at least that's a signal that they're giving. Um, the senators retreat for a couple of days, preparing for questions, but also starting to whip up the votes. And at the same time, you've got this book by John Bolton, which is very critical of the president. And then John Kelly comes along to say he believes John Bolton. On top of that, you had these basically unconstitutional arguments being argued yesterday and today by the president's legal team. Alan Dershowitz, who is still embroiled to this day in allegations that he took part in Jeffrey Epstein's blackmail and extortion scheme involving underage girls. I don't know why he was even allowed to be testifying in front of the Senate, but there he was. And he was making this audacious argument that the president of the United States could only be impeached for committing actual crimes as opposed to what the Constitution says, which are high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, this is not only what the Constitution does not call for, and is also not what the frame is intended, but Dershowitz's arguments also have this fatal flaw, and it seems to go right through all the legal defenses the president's team has been putting forward. Dershowitz and his good friend Bill Barr also argue that the president cannot be investigated and that the president cannot be indicted for committing crimes while in office. You remember that's why during the Mueller report, they said the president could not be investigated or indicted. So if the president can't be investigated or indicted while in office, and if you believe Dershowitz, he could only be impeached for crimes, actual crimes while in office, then the president cannot be impeached. He basically becomes king, and you can just throw away the American Constitution and hope for the best. And it's for, on that point that I'd like to bring in uh, Gary Darden. Hi, Gary, professor of history, Hello. American history from Fairleigh Dickinson, just across the river here in uh, New Jersey. Nice to see you, Gary. Nice to see you. What I want to do for the rest of the show is look at things by the numbers. And the first number is the number three, which is the number of times the Senate has tried a sitting U.S. president in a trial to convict and remove him. Now, the Senate has only done this twice before, and it's in the cases of Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, which makes it really just these three guys, Johnson, Trump and Clinton, who are actual recipients of this honor, I guess, dubious honor, of being uh, tried in the Senate. Now, that is not a lot for you as an historian and, and the rest of us to go on. Well, there's there's been 44 men have entered the White House, although Trump's the 45th president, Grover Cleveland had in consecutive terms. Oh, so 40 men have, have entered the White House, and three of them have been impeached and tried in the Senate. Had Nixon not resigned, he would have been impeached. He would have been tried in the Senate. So we're talking a a relatively small fraction of the office holders actually were um, impeached. Right. And one of the things I would say that if you if you read sort of the literature on impeachment is impeachment in every sense of the word, it is a political trial. It's not a criminal trial. It's not a civil trial. It's a political trial involving political operators. It's, it's involving officers of the Constitution, mm. which is exactly what Congress the House Representatives reps are, and it's exactly what the U.S. Senators are, and it's exactly what the Chief Justice is. It is a political trial, which means politics and partisan emotion is going to permeate such a trial and process, no matter how we wish it not to be. Right. But it's, it is still an incredibly uh, 
consequential trial. I mean, you could say, hey, it's just politics, but there's a lot of things that are just politics. This is a, this, you know, in this particular case, in Donald Trump's case, you're dealing with issues of national security. You're dealing with issues that could be bordering on treasonous um, and, and beyond just your typical bribery and corruption, like absolutely, uh, you know, game-changing, rebalancing of global power kind of things. Um, you know, it's not less consequential because it's a political tr- trial. No, I would agree. And what makes this one extremely unique is that what brought us to this point is the very fact that this involves Trump's interaction with a foreign power. Mm-hmm. And in regards to that country's relationship with Russia, which is in sort of an undeclared ground war uh, versus Russia and eastern Ukraine. And even though Trump may not, many Americans and many Republicans still see Russia as one of our most aggressive and chief adversaries. Right. And so this is a this is a foreign policy driven, national security driven impeachment, and that has never happened in and, any of the in the other two trials. And that's why I think the the outcome is really uncertain because the other two uh, were a little bit more predictable. This one becomes less predictable because the outcomes are so serious. Now the next number zero, you've sort of touched on this before. Now that's the number of times a Senate trial has actually convicted and removed a president of the United States, and uh, this sort of leads you into. Nixon, because Nixon, although he was impeached, never actually got to the trial stage because he was convinced, basically, not to go through it because they didn't have the votes in that case. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Well, the issue with Nixon is, you know, Nixon did not order the break in at the Watergate complex, but many of the people that worked on his campaign, including his attorney general, his chief of staff, his chief domestic advisor, his chief counsel, Many of them were involved and knew about this break-in to benefit Nixon's campaign. That is to get into the DNC headquarters at the Watergate complex down by the Potomac River. Mm. Once Nixon found out that this actually did take place, that his men did it, what he did is he lied in order to cover up and then took illegal campaign cash to basically buy off people. Right. And he lied to the press and he lied to Congress about his actions. Once the tapes were ordered by the Supreme Court, the public knew that Nixon had been lying to the public since 1972. So 72 into 73, into 74. And what happens once those tapes are released is the House Judiciary Committee had already passed articles of impeachment. The next step was the floor of the House. That the House of Representatives adopt articles calling for the impeachment of Richard M. Nixon. Make no mistake about it. This is a turning point, whatever we decide. The Democrats controlled the House. Nixon knew he was going to be impeached. He thought he could weather a trial in the Senate with enough Republicans defending him. And what Mm -hmm. happens is, is Barry Goldwater, the arch conservative senator from uh, Arizona, who was also the 1964 Republican presidential nominee that Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, crushed, went to the White House with two moderate Republicans and told the president, you do not have the votes in the Senate, you will lose the trial, and equally important, you don't have my vote. So Goldwater basically told Nixon, I will vote for your removal based on the evidence that I know now. And the next day, Nixon resigned from office, basically to protect his pension to protect the humiliation of being forcibly removed from office. And that's where we found ourselves. So had a trial taken place, uh, most historians would argue that Nixon would have lost that trial by two thirds or more of the votes. So that's 67 votes, as we've said. So that's significant. Now, obviously, 
if they had enough votes to find him guilty, they would with that scenario would have happened already. McConnell and others would have gone over to the White House and told Trump, you're not going to make it. You better go now and make the deal that you need now. Because as you've mentioned to me before, someone who's impeached cannot be pardoned. Is that correct? There's open interpretation, but if someone is impeached, the, the offenses for which you're impeached, you cannot be pardoned for. And so right. that's in debate, but a lot of scholars, including uh, Robert Reich, the former labor secretary for Bill Clinton, wrote an article in The Guardian saying exactly that. And other, other political scientists have made the same argument. So that's really... So Nixon resigning also prevented him from actually being formally impeached. Right. Oh, so he, he resigned before the actual formal impeachment process. That's Only the House Judiciary Committee had passed articles. It was now going to go to the floor of the House. He didn't have the votes there. So, the, so they would have, could see. So back to my point, I think that, you know, McConnell would have done this already, or, or someone would have done this already, had marched over to the White House and said, you better resign. They obviously have a high confidence they're not going to get to 67 votes. But the, the thing the Republicans are clinging to is that right now the latest poll has about 48 percent support removal from office and about 47 percent do not. That number has tightened in the last couple of weeks. And Republicans are banking on that. And I think when I had spoken on your on this uh, broadcast in the fall, I had mentioned we talked about Nixon, mm -hmm. is that the public support for Nixon's impeachment and removal went from 30 percent up to 60 and 70 percent. So by the time Nixon resigned, three quarters of the public was against him. If those numbers were present right now, then you would have people going to the White House worried about the actual vote in the Senate. But we live in very, very, we live in much more hyper-partisan times than we did in the 1970s. For sure. There is a 75% number out there today that came out from the Quinnipiac poll. And that's this, you know, the 75% of Americans are in favor of hearing witnesses and new evidence in this trial. Now that's, that is a very significant number. I mean, it's not one that you can really easily ignore. I think it's as high as 95% amongst Democrats, but, you know, lower, obviously, amongst Republicans. But the average there is 75. That's a difficult number to argue against when you're a swing senator that might be losing their seat um, if, if, you know, if this trial doesn't appear to be fair and, and balanced. Um, your thoughts on this new poll? Well, the, 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 poll's, the poll's pretty impressive because, again, Wanting to have witnesses is different than wanting the president to stay in office or removed. Right. It, it, it's, it's a passive decision about, hey, I need more information. And if you're a Democrat, you hope the information is so damning that it sways that public opinion for removal. Mm -hmm. If you're a Republican, you're afraid that the information is going to shift public opinion. And if public opinion begins to shift through Bolton or multiple uh, witnesses, then you begin to see the the vote numbers slide i think a scenario that seems most likely with witnesses is we're not going to see 67 senators vote for removal i think one of the best case scenarios for the democrats in terms of the 2020 election is that for 51 or more senators to vote for removal so that's a good college, segue to my next number because my next yeah. number is the number one and that's the number one number of votes that uh, Andrew Johnson escaped conviction for his removal from office. Um, the actual tally during that one was 35-19, a smaller Senate. Um, but, you know, that's basically what you're saying, is that there is a potential here that the Democrats may still eke out what appears to be a victory, even though they may not ultimately get a removal from office um, and a conviction from the Senate. They might, you know, anything above 50, is going to appear to people 
like he should have like a majority like he should have gone and then you know he's a lame duck president basically because he has no authority to continue um operating for the rest of his term yeah it becomes it becomes the impeachment is a stain on his record and if he get 51 or 52 senators to vote for removal it won't remove him but it, what it says to history and to the american public is that the president lost a vote of confidence in both a democratically held senate mm. i mean sorry democratically held house and in a Republican-held um, Senate. Um, it may not make him a lame duck because being a lame duck means you have a sense of humility and Trump <laughs> is gonna behave as if, he's gonna see this as, I wasn't removed, keep swinging the golf club. Right. But I do think it will, it will harm him uh, going into the fall elections, that a oh, majority yeah. of the Senate rebuked him. And, 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 and also, it looks less partisan. Right. It does look less partisan. It's going to make a very difficult time for the Republicans running for re-election if he's on the ticket with them, uh, if he gets a majority of people in the, uh, in the Senate voting against him as well. Tell us a little bit more, if you will, about Andrew Johnson, because he's an interesting character. Um, originally, he was running uh, with Lincoln, and nobody ever expected Mr. Johnson to be the president of the United States. But, you know, Lincoln died, obviously, and there he was. Andrew Johnson became the leader. Now, he wasn't even a Republican. He was running under some sort Correct. of uh, national unity ticket with Lincoln. Yeah, the 1860 election destroyed the National Democratic Party because Southern Democrats went with the South and Northern Democrats lost half of their, 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 their fellow Democrats that would serve in the Senate and serve in um, the House. But Johnson remained loyal to the Union and as a result of this, Lincoln made him the military governor of occupied Tennessee. And Lincoln, fearing he would lose the 1864 election, offered this Democrat, not a Republican, the vice presidency to offer a sense of national unity. Now, lo and behold, no one thought Lincoln would be assassinated. So all of a sudden, the Republican Party, which won the sweeping re-election 1864, now had an ideological career Democrat and a former slave owner in the White House, and he was blocking a lot of Reconstruction legislation designed to protect uh, the freedmen, the four million African Americans. So Congress passes the Tenure of Office Act saying that the president cannot remove a cabinet member approved by the Senate. Mm -hmm. And they were doing this to basically keep General Grant in, as, the, as the head of the army and Edwin Stanton as Secretary of Defense. And Johnson vetoes the bill. <laughs> Congress then overrides the veto with the two-thirds vote. Johnson fires Stanton, and the breach of that law becomes the basis to oh, impeach and remove Johnson from office. And he, the day of the trial, the votes seem to be there for Johnson's removal. And what happens that day is a freshman senator from Kansas cast a not guilty vote, and literally by one vote, Johnson will remain in office from February 1868 until his replacement takes over at the inauguration, which was then held back in March of 1869. So it was a hairpin moment in U.S. history. It is interesting when you look at the actual crimes that people are impeached for here. He's basically, the, act, the crime in this case was firing a cabinet minister. Uh, in, in the case of... Um, of Nixon, it was, you know, the break-in, but more than that, it was about his being, you know, perjuring himself, um, is what you were saying, I think, in the, in the previous description. It was, obstru it was obstruction of Congress. It was basically um, lying to Congress. Right. He was breaking the law. He basically was not allowing Congress to do its investigation. And then the only other thing we get to go on is the next number I'm going to show you, which is the number 50, and that is the number of 
um, and it speaks to the point you were just making. The number of 50 is the number of senators who voted to convict and remove Bill Clinton for, from office for obstruction of justice. Now, um, that wasn't the main thing he was up for. He was up for uh, perjury, of course, because he lied in testimony. But the higher vote came on the obstruction of justice. Tell us a little bit about that, because you does again point to this idea that, you know, he got half of the Senate voting against him. That is super significant. Um, that is. It's, it's exactly half. But you're talking about that uh, Clinton had been under investigation for many years and the Clinton administration was not eager or happy to cooperate with a Republican-controlled Senate and House since the 1994 midterms when the Republicans had a shocking sweep and took over the House for the first time since the 50s and the Senate for the first time since the 1980 uh, Reagan um, landslide. The perjury charge is interesting because Nixon, I mean, not Nixon, Clinton was asked under oath, did you have sex with Monica Lewinsky? And eight presidents in the 20th century committed adultery mm. before, during, or after their presidency. So the question- it well, As far as we know. To, as far as we know, <laughs> but it, these are documented presidents yeah. that had committed some form of extramarital affair. And you have to ask yourself, if you're going to ask a public official under oath with cameras mm -hmm. and the press, did you commit adultery? The president at that very moment has a choice to lie and protect himself and his family or say yes and destroy his career and destroy his family. Mm -hmm. And so the public at no point did less than two thirds of the American public think that Clinton should be removed for lying about adultery. As, as, as egregious and harmful as it was to Hillary Clinton and her family, and many Americans found what he did repugnant, they did not believe that that rose to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor to be removed from office. And I think the 50-50 vote on obstruction was right down party lines with some Republicans not voting for this uh, as really sort of the last punch of the Republicans after years of Ken Starr's investigations. But really, when you look at all these offenses, <coughs> when you start comparing, you know, Nixon's offenses, serious, and got him out of office. You've got Johnson's offenses, which obviously you think not that serious, like, you know, firing a cabinet minister is probably something you'd expect your uh, president to do these days quite often. And then, you know, Clinton's offenses, which are lying and obstructing justice. The scale of things that you're looking at for Donald Trump Jr., I'm sorry, Donald Trump, is, is so significant. It's so massive. When you look at it on a sliding scale, you think, well, these guys, you know, some of them were at least got a, a majority of, of senators. Others um, were able to, to you know, in, 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 um, in Johnson's case, almost get to full impeachment. But what is going on here? Has the sliding scale of, of justice just shifted so far under Donald Trump that we lo have lost our bearings, that, you know, we now think it's okay for the president of the United States to be so egregiously in, you know, in contravention of the, of the Constitution that it's okay for him to just continue doing it? Well, I, I, I accept the word you use. There's no doubt in my mind as, a, as a, a historian of American politics is that the case against Trump is the strongest impeachment case lodged against any president. I would put Trump's number one, Nixon's number two, Andrew Johnson's three, and Clinton's four, with the mm. lower two not worthy of removal from office, Johnson and, and Clinton. What we find ourselves in is a hyper-partisan moment where there was an article once written saying that many Trump supporters have a different definition of corruption. Corruption to them is not classic wheeling and dealing, withholding money, promising money, but it's about what they perceive to be the corruption of American culture. Mm. And this comes to the heart of white nationalism. 
So for Trump supporters, he's seen as this valiant knight that's going to save the unwhitening of America. So by f battling the Chinese and the Mexicans on trade, battling the in incoming presence of non-white immigrants from the Middle East and from Mexico and Muslim immigrants, he's fighting a, a different type of corruption in the mind of many Trump supporters than what you and I would see mm. as he broke the law. He mm. was withholding legal money from Ukraine to basically do a mafia ploy against Biden in the election. They don't care about and that as much. They care about the corruption of their bloodline. They, they see Trump as fighting a, a form of corruption in their mind that is more important than this sort of mafia classic, mm. breaking the law, withholding tax dollars, strong-arming people uh, that comes right out of the Godfather. That mm. to them is less concerning. It's very concerning to me. It's mm. very concerning to you. Mm. And it's very concerning to a majority of Americans. But it, it, it had the opinion polls ever moved in the direction that 60% supported removal, we would be having a very different conversation about the Senate trial. Mm. But so as long as Trump has strong support from his own party, and Mitch McConnell is holding on to his caucus pretty strongly, they see the removal of Trump as more devastating to the party than keeping him. I had not heard that analysis before, and it's about the first time I've heard analysis that makes sense to me, because it's really hard to otherwise justify what's going on, you know, unless you're saying that they're working on a different sort of, you know, they're, they're in a different paradigm. They're worried about, um, you know, about who they are as a people um, on a level that is very different than about just the everyday legalities of, um, of, of our Constitution or the law in general. And to them, maybe the Constitution doesn't matter as much, even though they're very still solid Americans, because that's the message you're sort of getting from, from the trial. Well, they, for, for many Trump supporters, they see 2016 and Trump's election as the last grasp to prevent the demographic shifts in the United States. They cannot change the fact that in 2010, more non-white children were born in the United States than white children. Mm -hmm. So if you extrapolate that out 20, 25 years, America's demography is changing. But if you can slow down or limit or clip immigration, if you can... In, engage in voter restriction and ballot tampering and all sorts of issues and using social media as a platform to manipulate public opinion, this won't change that demography. But what it's doing is it's slowing it down. It's making the inevitable slower. Mm -hmm. It's interesting as, as we look at the Democratic field out there, you know, running in, auto, in Iowa, there's a, um, a definite feel that somewhere along the line, especially if Sanders wins this this first round, that someone like Bloomberg is going to become an even more likely uh, candidate than than even Biden right now because of his kind of blurry de democratic credentials. He's sort of a, a middle-of-the-road Republican and Democrat. He sort of is the kind of person who maybe can, can espouse some of the same kind of conservative ideas around immigration, but still have some of these other liberal ideas around, around you know, the economy and some other things like welfare and, and those kinds of issues. Well, the, Republic, the Democratic Party today, I think, is divided between two flanks. And this, this first reared its head in the Clinton-Bernie uh, primary back in 2016, 2015 into 16. There's the revolutionary wing of the party that wants real fundamental radical change over health care, student loans, the environment, the Green New Deal. And then there are the Restoration Democrats. And the Restoration Democrats, like Biden, Buttigieg, and Bloomberg, they want basically a 
a restoration of the status quo before Trump. Mm-hmm. And they want to return to decency. It's a much more it's a much more moral reclamation path, whereas the revolutionaries want economic populism. They want economic populism to literally lock horns like two rams on a mountain mm-hmm. with the cultural white nationalist populism of, of Trump. My fear is, is that cultural populism tends to, and, or nationalist uh, populism tends to beat economic uh, populism in most instances because Trump right now has the white working class largely behind him, which means Trump has to fight. I mean, Trump's opponent to win has to secure non-white working class. And he has mm-hmm. to fight for the white suburban working class. If you have a platform that's antagonistic to a lot of middle class issues and values, then you run the risk that they will vote for the devil they know, Trump, mm-hmm. over the devil they don't know, Sanders. And there's some indications that, I mean, certainly historically, it, you know, it's kind of weird that we're fighting the battle of you know socialism versus populism, which is exactly what we beat the Soviet Union with. And of course, the Russians are here influencing our elections by, uh, by dividing us into this sort of, you know, are we now more of a socialist? Well, if you believe San- Sanders is, is in fact supported by some Russian influence, that there is a, you know, it's sort of a reverse trajectory that we had the, the Soviet Union on in the 1980s. Well, we have this, there's, there's a rhetoric. I mean, populism and socialism come out of the crisis of the rise of industrial capitalism in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And they, they feed off of each other. They, they, they can link up together and they can fight each other. But, you know, for example, Social Security is a socialist program. It's a, it's a public, federally mandated, nationally controlled annuity system. Mm-hmm. And so we have these, these entities in U.S. history where socialism has had its day. The, the problem is, is that socialism as a word is a bogeyman, but socialism as practiced in Western Europe still exist within democratic societies. So what Sanders and Warren are calling for is essentially a larger role of the public sector in regulating and managing this market economy that seems to be skewed towards the elites. But Mm -hmm. Trump is telling them that the problem is not the elites, the problem is China, Mexico's, and Muslims. He's telling you that it's basically, it's not an economic question, it is a cultural question. And I, that's where I, I would be very leery of an election that is defined exclusively on sort of a battle between populism and socialism. Well, especially coming off the back of what we've been through, which has, you know, divided us so much and polarized the electorate to such an extent. Um, you certainly want to try to get back to the middle, which is why, again, you know, Bloomberg, Biden, the sort of middle of the road guys seem to be the more likely uh, candidates who will be successful. One thought, please, from you on whether you think all this attention on Biden is actually going to hurt him uh, in, this, as in, in his candidacy. Well, I think, you know, if, if the Democrats want to look at the issue of li- real corruption that has occurred in the, in the Trump White House and the behavior of his children, that's legal corruption in my mind. Mm-hmm. Even if what Hunter Biden did in the Ukraine is technically legal, the optics don't look good. No. So, so, so Biden knows that you know, when the Biden family stands at the Democratic convention, the balloons come down, Hunter Biden's on that stage, and the, and the Republicans are going to point to him as he did the same thing. It happens everywhere. If, if Sanders does very well in Iowa and New Hampshire and Biden underperforms, we will move into South Carolina and into Super Tuesday. And I, my prediction is that Bloomberg will emerge as the anti-Sanders mm-hmm. candidate in the party, and he has the money to pay for it. 
So, certainly does. He looks like he's gone up to 10%, 12% in some polls. Uh, you know, it, it does look, you know, for better or for worse, that Warren is not uh, managing a comeback and uh, it doesn't look good for her campaign. So we are beginning to see these line up uh, as uh, certainly the, the race takes shape for uh, 2020. It will be interesting, of course, if Donald Trump is there or not. I have one more number for you. Sure. 16 is the number of times a Senate has held impeachment trials in all. Eight were convictions. All of them were judges, but it does give you a 50%, 50 percent chance that the, according to precedent, if you will, that the Senate could convict the person who they're looking at in terms of, uh, of a trial, which means there is a 50% chance, perhaps, that the President of the United States, Donald Trump, could be impeached, convicted, and removed from office. I would say yes, there's less of a partisan interpretation of a federal judge being removed, yeah. because when someone holds the awesome powers of the presidency, and when you're talking about essentially not with a federal judge rebuking an appointment and a confirmation from the Senate, mm -hmm. you're talking about rebuking the last election, essentially. Yeah, so, for sure the judges think makes it, a, makes it less, less of a valid uh, statistic, but uh, it's a point worth trying to make. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, certainly politically, this has become much more contentious because judges are not uh, normally viewed, viewed in that light. But it's, a, it's an interesting stat, and who knows, it may, it may happen. The, the, the next few days, we have questions and answers from um, the senators, two days of that. And then, and then what do we have after that? Like say they, they vote right after that on, on whether they should hear witnesses. Is that correct? Well, you're right. So basically uh, Wednesday and Thursday is going to be the senators submitting written questions to the chief justice. He will read them and then, they, and then the, the legal teams for each side will have a chance to answer those questions with a limit on how long they, the answer can be. I believe it's four minutes. On Friday, then the senators will have up to four hours to debate and at some point on Friday, they will have to have a vote on whether or not there's going to be a witness like Bolton or witnesses, plural. And it mm. can be sort of a open-ended plural vote, not likely, or a singular vote over Bolton. If the line gets crossed with Bolton with, say, 51 or 54 votes, I think there may be more, then the Republicans are going to try to flood that microphone with more witnesses. Mm. If we get more witnesses, a trial could go on for weeks. If for any reason McConnell holds his caucus down and they'll say the Democrats get, get, don't get 51 votes, then uh, without witnesses and with the four hours of debates, there could be a motion to call the vote on the, on the articles. And so you're if, saying by this Friday, we might even be able to get a vote on, on whether he's uh, guilty or, or not guilty? Yes. If McConnell has his way, they will vote down any witnesses. They will cap the debate to four out to four hours, and then they will move for a uh, a vote on the articles. And unless sixty-seven senators vote for either one of those articles, Trump remains in office. So the Republic literally hangs in the balance over the next few days uh, because you know some would see it, the president of office or staying in office as very consequential for the future of of the Republic and the Constitution as we know it. Some people would argue that even, um, you know, the end of democracy. And, and, and that's, you know, there's a case for all of that. So this week is probably one of the most important in American history. It's certainly, it, it's in living memory, this is certainly a, a constitutional crisis that, like I said, we're talking, we have to go back to Watergate to see a constitutional crisis on this level. Trump would love for this to be done by Friday, Saturday at the latest, so that his $10 million ad at the Super Bowl 
tease him up for his State of the Union address on Tuesday, in which you will see the president gloat that mm -hmm. they came after me, they couldn't convict me, I'm still the president, and, and you will see the State of the Union literally be sort of a soapbox for his reelection. Uh, what would you be asking, just if I can, the question you'd ask uh, of, uh, in, in, in the next Q&A, in the 48 hours, what's the one question you want to know? Oh, that's a very good question. It's a on the spot, I would so. say, I would ask the Republican team, what exactly would the president have to do for you to warrant conviction and removal from office, if not this? Hmm. That's a good question. I like it. All right. Gary Darden, thank you very much for joining us again. It's been terrific having you thank on. You, always Seth. a pleasure. Don't forget, you can always go to patreon.com forward slash narrative and support narrative for as little as $5 a month. Don't forget, you've got a few days where you can influence American history. Call your senators. Call your senators who are in those swing states. Tell them what you want, you know, assuming you want uh, a, a conviction um, and a removal from office, demand that or certainly demand witnesses. Everyone in the country deserves a fair trial. Uh, and so does America. The powers of the presidency are immense, but they are not absolute. How, how are you going to explain this? Giuliani and the corrupt foreign uh, prosecutor general had plans to, quote, do things to me. A secure, democratic, and free Ukraine serves not just the Ukrainian people, but the American people. He was being involved in a domestic political errand. And we were being involved in national security foreign policy, and those two things had just diverged. The Ukrainian embassy staff asked what is going on with Ukrainian security assistance. President Zelensky will do anything that you, meaning President Trump, ask him to. Who would benefit from, from an investigation of the Bidens? I assume President Trump. And now Ukraine is a battleground for great power competition, with a hot war for the control of territory and a hybrid war to control Ukraine.